Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson and I'm the founder of Stack. And this week I'm speaking with Jeff Taylor, the founder of Courier Magazine. If you live in London, there's a good chance you'll have seen Courier distributed for free in a cool cafe or a co-working space. It's a magazine dedicated to covering startup culture and for most of its life it's been a free title but a few issues ago it navigated the tricky switch to becoming a paid-for magazine, enabling it to reach out beyond its London base and become a genuinely international title. Issue 23 is going to print right now and 60,000 copies will be on their way to shops very soon. So Jeff came over to the office to talk about the big shift to paid and how the print magazine fits in alongside other things like events, newsletter, podcast and more. If you're a regular listener to the Stack Podcast, you'll notice that Jeff is a little unusual for us. Most of the magazine makers we speak to begin with some great passion and are determined to make something that they love. I don't think there's any doubt that Jeff is passionate about Courier, but he's also first and foremost a businessman. And it's refreshing to hear from somebody who's absolutely focused on making sure that this thing makes money. It helps that he's also a very nice chap and disarmingly open about the difficulties they've faced along the way. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Jeff Taylor from Courier Magazine. All right, Jeff, thank you very much for coming over to Somerset House. My pleasure. <laughs> See, it's a beautiful sunny day outside. Now. And we're in a bunker. down to this like, horrible dark <laughs> in your, room. In your recording bunker. Exactly. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. Uh, anyway, you are the founder of Courier magazine. Um, you've been through a lot of changes with Courier in the last couple of years. Maybe you could tell us, first of all, what is the mag? What does it do? And what's behind all these changes? Yeah, it's kind of evolved over time. I mean, when the two of us started it, we started it with just a very clear sort of insight that both us who'd quit our jobs from big corporate jobs and a lot of our friends were increasingly going off to try other things and not necessarily being motivated just by money. And when we looked at what was business media, I mean, we would never have read any of that stuff. It was like stocks and shares and corporate news or what was horrible stuff like Dragon's Den and The Apprentice that you know just made you cringe. And yet at the same time, you'd be in a queue in a coffee shop and you'd hear people talking suddenly about how do they make a margin on a flat white and then what does that translate to and the rent. And we just kind of got this smell that it was much bigger than just a few people, that this was a sort of life decision people were making. So we um, probably quite naively just put out our first issue. We distributed about 5,000 copies around Shoreditch. And then it just grew, it's a horrible word, but organically from there. And now we find ourselves at issue 23 is just going to um, print tomorrow. And uh, we're on sale around the world and do, you know, I can't remember what the latest number is, but it's it's well above sort of 50,000 copies every issue. I think 60,000 copies go out. Wow, right, okay. So, the, I mean, the big difference in there is you started out with a free magazine you're giving out in coffee shops in Shoreditch. Yeah. And you're now selling the thing. Yeah. That's a massive difference. Yeah, I think for us initially, the observation was that a lot of the audience wasn't in newsagents to begin with, and we always wanted to have quite broad reach as a title. So it made sense to go where the audience was early on, and that was coffee shops, shared workspaces, private members clubs. So we engineered the magazine around that, and we deliberately made it 
feel really nice, not like free magazines, which is generally sort of horrible. So we spent a lot of time on stock and design. But it meant that rather than if we'd launched in paid at that stage and we would have had like 100 readers or something, we were able to quite quickly amass 25,000 to 30,000 readers across the city. And that gave us then a platform to convert some of them to paid for and power it on. So I can't say it was a master plan at the beginning, but there was a general sense that you had to build an audience and then convert them rather than in sort of a declining magazine market, try to launch a paid title with very little money behind you. But that still must be a really difficult thing to do. I mean, to, to get people who've been, they're used to having this magazine for free in a coffee shop. Like, what was your process for, for saying, right, now actually you need to start paying us for this? Well, we did two things. I mean, number one, we upgraded the magazine a lot. So it had been sort of 36 or 40 pages on a nice but relatively cheap, you know, newspaper sort of stock. We upgraded it into, you know, a, a glossy cover, 100 pages. So it, I mean, it's a significantly more evolved um, product. And actually, the, the new issue, issue 23, gets another evolution. We've got a change in size and some stock changes and about 50 more pages as well. So we did that. But the other thing we did is we just told our readers what was going on. We just sort of said, look, free's been great for London, but we have demand from around the world. We want to grow this out. We can't do it with free. So we'd love you to come on the journey with us. Um, we do other free things. You can get our weekly email that goes out every Friday. You can come to our events. But if you want the magazine, we've got to start charging for it. <laughs> people are pretty cool about that. People understand. I mean, especially this audience, they kind of understand the economics of, of being a little little business. So we, we were just very honest about it. And you started with that insight of actually people are not in news agents anymore. Yeah. And I, I totally hear you. And I, I'm sure that's still the case. But so then you're, you're selling this magazine. So what's your route? Like, where are you actually selling the magazine? Yeah, I mean, so we do sell in newsagents and newsstands around the world. And we do, we do relatively well in those channels. I, I was going through um, uh, Terminal 5 and WH Smith's had The Economist, Monocle, Private Eye and Us all together on the top shelf. And, and that was a real sort of like it's be quite great moment. Yeah, it was. That was a photo <laughs> to a few friends and your mom going, look, we kind of made it. <laughs> Uh, I had to check at the office. We didn't pay for that, did we? It was like, no, no, we didn't. It was, it was completely, uh, completely justified. So, I mean, it's not like we don't sell there, but increasingly the audience and our audience just aren't in those places. We are rolling out in Waitrose with the next issue and supermarkets are increasingly a very important place for magazine sales. But then we're lucky as well that we've got a great relationship with a lot of uh, independent bookstores, with shared workspaces where we sell subscriptions, coffee shops, some of them have gone from being free outlets to paid for outlets. Uh, And then the digital products kind of bring in traffic as well. So much like a lot of other independent magazines, we have a lot more paths to us than maybe a traditional sort of title does. Okay, so the, I'm glad you mentioned that because you have the the newsletter, yeah. which is now, so your your newsletter comes out on a Friday morning. Every every Friday, 7am. Yeah, five stories of modern business. And it's one of the ones that, I, like when I see it in my inbox, I'm going to read it. Oh, because it's very kind the, of you. Yeah. You, Because you can see there's like, there's genuine like care and attention goes into making yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, we um we don't have a lot of products. You know, For a long time we had one, a magazine, and, and we even neglected the website. We just felt we had to get one thing really right. And when we thought about doing the email, we actually spent probably five or six months developing it as a product. And I think that's the difference. For us, it wasn't like a newsletter where we just wanted to pump out information about us. We wanted to create something that added to the sort of proposition and that was really useful to the audience. And even things like 7 a.m. on a Friday morning, it's a very considered kind of like, look, it's the day before the weekend. It's when you're a bit open to maybe thinking about this sort of thing. 
We tried a couple of times. We thought that was the right one. And this formula of just five little bite size and that same serendipity that you get in the magazine. You can get a story on weed and then story on a shared workspace and then a story on shrimps or something all in all in a little bite size read. And, and does that content then get used again elsewhere? No, it's just exclusive for the uh, for the email. I mean, it's not that maybe there are some themes that we might start off in the email and then it might generate a story or vice versa. But generally, we um, we do all original reporting for that as well. It's, it's really important to us that we're not just sort of recycling content. We, I, I like to think that if you come to an event, you buy the magazine and you get the email, you'll get fresh, different stuff at all of those, but all of them still around our, our proposition of um, of working and living on your own terms, which is sort of the uh, the totem pole that we, um, we design everything around. Uh, and so then you also think of other digital stuff. You Last year, you had a podcast series. Yeah. Now... When you're talking about the newsletter, I'm thinking, wow, this sounds like a big investment of time and, and effort and energy. A podcast, even more so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, you know, like it's not a, it's one of those things. It's very easy to start products. It's much harder to keep them going. It's like when um, people ask me for advice on making a magazine and I'm always like, forget about the first one. I want you to think about issue nine because that's when, you know, the, the, the tedium of having a, a beast that has to be fed really sort of sets in. Um, yeah, we, we were lucky enough. Uh, the podcast last year was a, was a client-funded um, piece, and we did uh, eight or ten episodes. I can't remember exactly, and it, and it was really fun. Uh, we've definitely got plans for podcasts in the future, and we have a terrific guy in the team now, Danny Giacopelli, who used to um, used to be at a different uh, magazine doing, um, doing a lot of their business podcasts and things. He's now our editor. So we're, um, we're dying to, uh, to get a podcast out. But again, I'd rather take the time and get it right. I want you to say the same thing about the podcast. There's only three I listen to. It's always in my weekly thing. Then put something out that people are a bit like, eh, it's not as good as the magazine. Right, yeah, exactly. So I, I'm just going to say it because you, you you weren't, but so it was Hiscox Insurance who That's was right, responsible yeah, Hiscox, for the, yeah. the podcast. Yeah. So did, what was the process of that whole thing? Did, was it that Hiscox came to you saying, we want the podcast, or you said, you know, we want to make a podcast. We need a sponsor. So no, we've had a relationship with Hiscox for a few years and of course the side of the business that readers don't see is we do do quite a bit of work for brands as well. It's my background was as a marketing director and before that in, in agencies. So what's quite nice about the relationships we have with clients is it's often much more than just an ad deal. So we love to sell ads, we love to sell advertorials more because we think we can do a better job for a brand but what we really like is when a brand sits down with us and together we understand what their objectives are and then we design a campaign of things and in the case of Hiscox last year there was a I think a 20-page supplement there was an advertorial series there was a series of events there was the podcast series and it all came together to kind of build a, a proposition around um, uh, growth and uh, managing risk during growth so so the podcast was, a, was something we proposed as part of that. And so the like very often we see with uh, with independent publishers they have the agency um, as part of what they're doing and actually that it's the agency that brings in the money and the magazine and the other stuff are kind of like shop window. Mm. How how does that sit with with Courier? Yeah, no, we're the complete opposite of that. In that, <laughs> <laughs> so that you do the agency work for the love. <laughs> we, we we do the agency work to fund the magazine, uh, like, but to fund the growth of the magazine rather than bringing in investment. So we're very lucky that the territory we're in and I guess the path that we found meant we were able to make a profitable magazine from quite early on. And, and I, I say lucky because it's hard for a lot of titles. We're lucky that there's a lot of people who want to spend in our territory. 
also I think having come from that world, we understood how to get into media agencies and sell and how to get clients on board. So we've always been very fortunate that we could bring in a, a good amount, but to grow the business, you need to do more. And so in the early days, we would do any sort of ad hoc creative. But now very much the agency is just a brand content support to the magazine. And so in the case of Hiscox, they're not buying unbranded stuff. It's all courier branded. We're just extending the relationship outside of the magazine and, um, and bringing it into other, other forms as well. And so is, has it been the case then that the magazine needs to actually stand on its own feet from the start or, or was it supported? Well, I mean, in the very early days it was supported, but um, uh, my feeling is every product line has to be profitable in its own right. You don't, um, don't subsidise one product line with another product line if you can't. In a, in a world of de- uh, declining print advertising revenue, if you can't make it profitable now, you probably won't be able to in a year or two's time. So every six months or so, we we sit down as a team and we look at what we do and everything has to justify its existence even the magazine if it's not making money or if it's not building the brand or it's not right well we'll get rid of it and we'll do something else nothing is um nothing is a sacred cow and so when you're having that meeting or you're looking at the stuff that you're doing like what is it that makes you want to be in print so you you actually have several avenues to reach people Print, I'd imagine, is probably the most expensive of, of the lot. What, what, like, why is that the right medium? Yeah, it's funny, and it's a real sort of... I mean, I think you and I have had this discussion in the past that a lot of the magazine industry kind of fetishizes print, and it becomes this whole, oh, print's amazing. If I'm perfectly honest, I couldn't give a shit what, our, what, our, <laughs> what the medium is. I, I think we've always tried to choose the right medium for the story we're trying to tell. And I came from quite a heavy digital background before this, so I'm certainly not anti-digital in any way. Print felt like the right place to create an immersive, evocative, but still kind of authoritative long-form format. And I think that's the case even now. Whether it can be economically um, viable in the long run, who knows? I suspect it can. I think as newspapers die, there's still a place for magazines. We won't have anywhere near as many titles. But I think the stuff that we're doing in the independent world has a much better chance of succeeding than the big brands. But if something changes, I've got no problem reconfiguring it. I think what makes Courier Courier is our authority, our authenticity, the way we go about finding and telling stories, the values that we bring to it, whether that's on paper or in film or audio, that's that's just details really and so you're now in the game of looking at sales so you're you're so you're putting this magazine out into the world and then you're looking to see what comes back was that three issues in that you've been doing that now with it yeah we're yeah we uh this will be our fourth issue on on newsstand yeah that comes out next week and so what have you discovered so far what surprised you what 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 things are you looking at you go like oh never realized oh my god so much like (laughs) things that i mean we we reconfigured the magazine to go into print but we were in retrospect you know a little naive just the size the shape how it sits next to other titles the fight for shelf space um, the types of channel that uh, we're going to sell better than others, the chains, um, how broken the distribution sort of industry is generally, how appallingly bad data is. You know, I still don't know what we sold in the US in November. For Christ's sake, like in a, in a digital world where I know within five minutes how the email's going this week, print has got a long way to go. Um, so all of that has been an enormous eye-opener. But I think the nice thing is the old print world was about 
okay, we'll launch a magazine, we'll spend a lot of money, it'll go for a few years, and then we'll redesign it. And We view Courier almost a bit more like a piece of software where, okay, we'll upgrade this bit on this issue, and now we'll do a bit of an upgrade over here. So it's always evolving. So when you get this issue in your hands, it's actually changed size again. We've knocked the size down a little bit. We've added uh, 50 pages in. We've given it a redesign and that'll continue. We just see it as an organic product. And I think that's how you keep adapting as we learn more uh, whilst we're out there. Uh, We're also very lucky that we have a lot of loyal readers. So we actually get really good feedback back about what's working and what's not. So that's interesting. When you said about um, size and on the, you know, fighting for space on a new center, I assumed yeah. that you meant you're making it bigger so yeah. that it can stand out above the others, but you've actually gone smaller. Well, it's funny, like we had this uh, conversation in the office where the commercial guys want to go as big as possible. <laughs> if it was up to them, we'd probably be the size of Victory magazine because <laughs> advertisers love big space. The editorial team would like thing and the design guys would like it to be quite sort of neat and tight and and whatnot, but we write a lot of words and that's a challenge for us. Uh, and one bit of feedback has always been that Courier is not the easiest to read. We have a fairly small print, a point size, um, etc. So we kind of decided to nudge it down a little bit based on the utility factor of, look, if you give us five pounds, I want you to get the best value you can out of this. And that means it has to sit comfortably in your bag. You have to be able to tuck it under under your arm with your, with your MacBook or something. It just... Big magazines are not practical magazines. They're great for sitting on a coffee table or whatever, but they don't actually get read. We want Courier to be treated like, you know, I love it when a friend of mine the other day sent me a photo, she found a copy of Courier in a shared workspace and there's notes all over it. And that just makes me so happy because so many magazines I suspect don't get read. When we do reader research, we don't actually so much ask people what they like and what they don't like. We ask them what they recall that's the best way to test whether people are actually reading you or not. And I get very excited when I see the level of recall that we actually get from the magazine. People actually read what we make. So this is a magazine to be read. What does success look like in that case? Well, I mean, beyond people reading and remembering your stuff, like when will you know we've done it? Well, I think in a way we feel that on every issue, you know, like are people happy with it? Are they consuming it? Are we getting good feedback back? Yeah, you know, we've added more sections, more features, things like that, but at a standard level, we're pretty happy. At a bigger level, when will we have made it? When we, I don't know, when we dominate the world. (laughs) No, I think when we can offer people a good, there is more demand for this stuff yet. People want, our readers break down into three groups. There's people who are dreaming about doing a business and for them, Courier is a really informative read, but also it can be a bit of escapism over a cup of coffee, you know, perhaps for people who can't leave their full-time job or whatever. There's people who've recently quit their job and they're getting ready to go and there's so much more Courier can do there to help people get prepared and and put them on the right track. And and it would be so rewarding if we were actually able to... um, you know, increase the likelihood of a business succeeding or something through the work we do. And then there's a group of people who are founders, uh, investors, you know, analysts who read us just to sort of keep up to speed with what's going on in the sector. And and so, so long as we're delivering them the maximum that they need, that for me is sort of, yeah, what, where we need to get to. Uh, and within all of this, you, you have some big conditional factors that are going to be affecting you regardless. So, I mean, Courier started in London. You've always had a, an identity of being based in London. Does Brexit affect the, the things that you're doing? I mean, you, you're going for a global audience now, and this is a... a, a particular sector which is very sensitive to to these kind of of tensions what have you found so far yeah i mean on the one hand we're very lucky that london is in some ways the capital of startup you know if you take tech businesses out 
either us or New York, you know, sort of vie for that title, I think, of, of capital startup. Is that under threat with Brexit? Yeah, I think it probably is. Not that any other city suddenly steals London's crown, but that there's a death by 10 cuts where Berlin gets 10% more, Paris gets 20% more, etc., and London just loses its shine. I think probably given we are rapidly evolving into a global title anyway, that's probably less scary for us because as demand changes for and interesting stories crop up around the world, we just did a story on you know Mongolia. So you know we're not sort of afraid to cover wherever there's a good story. It's just a, a resource thing. But as we get bigger resources, get taken care of. But um, always like the Economist. You know, you pick up the Economist, you know it's from London, even though it's a global magazine. There's there's more UK news than you could otherwise justify. We'll probably always have a bit more London news, and the world looks to London for a lot of this stuff. So we're lucky like that. Had we come from like my hometown of Melbourne. I'm not sure we we could sustain a local element for that long. Yeah, sure, sure. All right, so give us, just to finish off, give us a little look in your crystal ball. What does the future hold for Courier? Well, I mean, I'm going to use this horrible word again. We're really into sort of organic growth. So every issue, we just try to peg out a little bit further. So we are on sale now in about 25 countries around the world, but you know, in some of them, they're just baby steps. So we just went into Barnes & Noble across the US. We've gone into Hudson News across the US. We've just gone into Japan with this new issue. So just gradually getting it out into more places, finding which countries work for us, which countries don't. It's funny, you know, like Germany can be very strong for us, but then Spain is weak and things that you don't know till you get out there and, and try it. So that's really important. We want to expand digital uh, a whole lot more. Um, uh, we have a lot of video DNA in our business. We've produced films for years for um, for clients. I'm just itching to get um, get some video out there. Everyone freaks out in the office when I suddenly yell out, Courier TV is coming, but <laughs> one day I'll get there. And, um, and quite exciting, we're going to do the first Courier Festival this year as well. And I, I'm not sure if festival is too grandiose a term for it, but we are going to um, put on a, a one-day event where people will be able to come and experience um, the magazine kind of in 3D and um, come to talks and take part in workshops and, and we'll have a great set of those, but also be able to buy stuff from startup fashion brands, food and drink, fitness guys there, just lots of really cool stuff. We'd love to give people four or five hours of just a, a really fantastic time immersed in, um, immersed in modern business and startup culture. Very cool. When does this happen? That's uh, September. In September. Okay, well, I'll look forward to seeing that and look forward to seeing this new issue you've got coming out. Awesome. Thanks, man. Okay, that's all for this week. I'm looking forward to hearing more details about that Courier Festival. And I love Jeff's ambition for this magazine and its wider brand. In his eyes, there's just no reason why Courier shouldn't be the biggest and most exciting voice in startup culture. And I think that belief is just infectious. As I said at the start, Jeff is kind of an unusual character for these podcasts, but take a look back to our archive and you'll find loads of driven and dedicated people speaking about the magazines they make. And if you follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts, we'll be able to deliver next week's episode as soon as it's ready. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back again next week.